I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We now live in a world that's sad, and sadness leads to meanness. When people feel invisible, they feel unsafe because we evolved to live with bands of 150 people who would look out for each other. And and when we don't feel seen and recognized, we feel the world's full of threat. And so we lash out. We used to have the ability to treat each other with consideration in the concrete circumstances of life. And those are just basic skills. And somehow we're not teaching them. And so we're ruder to each other than we need be. And we're meaner to each other than we need be. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I feel almost every conversation here on Wild at the moment needs to recognise and have as its backdrop the increasing polarisation of our society, the fracturing, the breaking down, and particularly now with where we are at with the Middle East crisis. In some ways, we face two wars, the brutal and horrific one on the ground and the one raging online among the rest of the onlooking world. The one that sees anti-Semitism and Islamic hate crimes escalating and various agencies around the world fearing for bloody local outbreaks. In the US, this polarisation is particularly apparent, especially ahead of the election next year. And there is a lot of discussion, as many of you here would be aware, about the collapse of American civilization. One of the voices in this discussion that the US is having is David Brooks, my guest here today on Wild. David is possibly one of America's most well-known political commentators. He's also been an open conservative and Republican supporter. He's worked on the Wall Street Journal editorial page and at the Conservative National Review, And yet, in recent years, he has, in his words, drifted left and become committed to pushing the case for deep moral discussion. I've been fascinated by this phenomenon itself, and I've quoted and shared David's work repeatedly over the years, from his discussions about societal breakdown via Chance the Rapper lyrics to his polemics on loneliness that preface things with an awareness of how angry young women are. He's a regular columnist at the New York Times and The Atlantic, a commentator on PBS NewsHour, NPR's All Things Considered, and NBC's Meet the Press. He has 30 honorary doctorates and is a teacher at Yale University. So David has long made the argument that the, quote, massive civilizational failure that we face comes down to a breakdown of basic moral skills. 
His book, The Road to Character, that I reference in both First We Make the Beasts Beautiful and This One Wild and Precious Life, makes the case for letting go of our resume virtues, the things that make you kind of seem good at your job, and instead prioritising eulogy virtues, what people will say about you at your funeral, hopefully. Things like honesty, courageousness, and your capacity for great love. The Second Mountain is another book of his that I read some time back. It's about the second stage of your life, when you move from being self-committed to other-committed, and thus you come into real meaning in your life. Last month, he released his latest book, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. In it, he points out that the words that define our age reek of menace, conspiracy, polarisation, mass shootings, trauma, safe spaces. And he asks, what if the answer is not some big government or non-profit program, but rather something as intimate as this, a meaningful conversation? I invited David onto Wild for a meaningful conversation about how to have more meaningful conversations how to communicate the pain and confusion and abandonment we're feeling in the world today with each other, and how this might be the only way to stave off this mass civilizational failure, as he calls it. In his conversation, David shares a lot of practical hacks for how to be one of those people that can walk into a room and make everyone feel a million bucks. The kinds of questions that we can ask in conversations, the things not to say, I also asked David whether he thinks moral formation, swinging our attention and commitment back to humanism, can save us from societal collapse. His answer is definitely a fascinating one. David Brooks, thank you so much for joining us here on Wild and congratulations on your new book and for really surviving as a writer, a journalist, a commentator in these times, you know, a commentator who, who who has opinions and puts them out there. Yeah, my, I got my current job at the New York Times 20 years ago, and the first six months on the job were the hardest professional months of my life because I'd never been hated on a mass scale before. And in those days, they put your email address in the bottom of the column so people could reach out to you. And after six months, I cleaned out my email inbox, which had 290,000 emails. And the core message was Paul Krugman, who's a more left-wing person than me. He's great. You suck. And so <laughs> I, I learned to get my skin a little thicker in that six months. And now I'm okay. I started in journalism before the internet and before email. And so you, you'd only get handwritten emails. And they were quite poisonous. Or sorry, I said, should say letters. They were quite poisonous, but it'd be one a week, you know. And I was an opinion columnist, a very... I was very young at the time. But yeah, I, I developed my thick skin slowly. I feel very sorry for journalists today entering the fray in this climate. But anyway, listen, we might start on that that note. We're living in a world that's so fractured and polarized. There are so many competing ideas, and it's all been heightened in the last month or so with what's happening in the Middle East. And we in the West, I've said this a few times across various forums that I write and speak on, we're not handling it. We're just not handling this complexity, the moral load that it presents, and so on. And all kinds of reasons are being put forward, and they've been put forward for some time. So capitalism, technology is another one, globalization. But you have written over the course of several books, and particularly your most recent one, and many, many essays, that 
it's really down to a deficit of moral education. So I'd love you to explain why you think that this is at the heart of the issue that we face. Well, the, the debates over October 7th and Gaza take place in a social context. And that social context has been a decay in the social fabric across Western societies. And I know the numbers in the US uh, best, but they're not too different in the UK or in other Western European countries. And that's the rising mental health crisis, 30% rise in suicide. Uh, the number of Americans who say they have no close personal friends is up by fourfold. Uh, the number of Americans who rate themselves in the lowest happiness category is up by 50%. 45% of teenagers say they are persistently hopeless and despondent. And then social trust levels are plummeting. And so we now live in a world that's sad. Uh, there's just a lot more sadness. And sadness leads to meanness. Uh, when people feel invisible, they feel unsafe because we evolved to live with bands of 150 people who would look out for each other. And, and when we don't feel seen and recognized, we feel there's, the world's full of threat. And so we lash out. And all those stats, sadness statistics I just gave you, I can repeat meanness statistics, hate crimes, gun violence, the decline of the number of people who give to charity, all sorts of things. And so people, we just don't treat each other with consideration and respect in my view. And of course, social media is part of the problem. Of course, inequality is part of the problem. But we used to have the ability or the skill to teach, treat each other with consideration in the concrete circumstances of life. And, and those are just basic skills. How do you listen well? How do you disagree well? How do you break up with someone without crushing their heart? How do you sit with a friend who's depressed? How do you sit with someone who's coming at you with an angry critique? Uh, these are basic social skills and they could be taught and somehow we're not teaching them. And so we're ruder to each other than we need be and we're meaner to each other than we need be. And everybody feels a little on edge as a result. Yeah, I mean, you can peel this onion in all kinds of ways, but the bottom line is, like I say, we're not handling it. And, you know, you might have social media issues. We might have issues that stem from capitalism, the neoliberal system, etc. But if we're not handling it well, then we can't solve our problems, right? We can't fix what we've created. And I get from your writing over many years that the fact that we're struggling to kind of pull apart and fathom the moral implications of everything we're doing is is adding to the issue at the very least but you're saying it's it's kind of causing the issues in the first place and i think i think that's a really important point because i think everybody at the moment who's witnessing what's happening over in the middle east is just equally upset by the reaction you know, that they're seen amongst their peers and on, online and so on. And it's an inability to, to morally wrestle with this sort of stuff. But I'm wondering if you can explain, and, and this goes back to, I think, your book, The Road to Character, which I, I read a number of years ago. I've quoted it in my books as well. But can you explain why this sort of, I guess, decline in what you call moral formation, an ability to to utilize and draw on moral principles, difficult ethical quandaries, and, and to wrestle with them with some kind of structure. Why is this happening now and at a time when we probably need moral formation than ever before? Yeah, I mean, my theory on that is that through most of Western history, we looked around at human nature and thought, well, people are wonderfully made, they're pretty cooperative, but they're also quite selfish a lot of the time. And if we're going to make a, a democracy, let alone a multicultural democracy out of these people, we have to teach them moral formation. And moral formation is a pompous phrase, but it really means three simple things. 
One, finding ways to restrain your natural selfishness. Two, finding an ideal or a purpose in life that you can serve so you feel your life has meaning and coherence. And three, teaching people to be considerate in the basic circumstances of life. And through the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, through much of the 20th century, moral formative institutions happened across society on left and right, religious and non-religious. And so primarily they were the schools. Schools used to teach, they used to regard their primary job as teaching character, not getting kids into some fancy university and not preparing them for jobs. And so in, the, in Britain, there's a school called the Stowe School, and the headmaster of that said, my job is to create students who are acceptable at a dance, invaluable at a shipwreck. In other words, the kind of people you can count on when the chips are down. And they saw that as their primary mission. And then on top of that, there were the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. There were even the unions were involved in how do we create a good worker, a good carpenter, institutions like companies, how do we cultivate, you know, in the 19th century, Victorian virtues. And so there, there was all this moral formation. And in the Netherlands or in the Scandinavian countries, they had a tradition called Bildung, which was German for moral formation. And that's the whole society was obsessed with this. And then after World War II, people decided human beings are not self selfish. Human beings are good. There's a little angel inside all of us. And all we have to do is self-actualize. We have to, I have to get in touch with me. And you do you. And so all those moral formation institutions gave way to the self-actualization. How do I get in touch with myself? And you can see in the words we use in the English language, a decline in words like honor, courage, kindness, compassion. We're just talking about morality less and increase in the words having to do with how can we become better professional and richer. And so we've sort of replaced a morally formative culture for a get-ahead culture. And I think as a result, when October 7th comes along, we just don't know how to deal with what are, what are really angry controversies. And you know, I covered the Middle East for 25 years ago there several times a year. And one of the things I don't like is the use of the word moral clarity in the circumstances. Because I can tell you when you're in the Middle East, there's no moral clarity. There's, there's goodness on all sorts of different sides, and there's pain and suffering on all sorts of different sides. The other thing I learned from going in and out of the Middle East was if I haven't been there the last four months, I really don't know what I'm talking about. And so suddenly you have all these people who haven't been there recently or have never been there with all sorts of strong opinions. And I can tell you, you have to be there in the current moment to have some grasp on the reality because it changes so much. And so a little humility would be advised in these circumstances. Just as one character trait that we could all probably do with at the moment. You talked about moral formation as, you know, having three purposes, one of which was about sort of taming our natural selfishness. You know, we we tend to be a self-centered species and, and that's what keeps us alive. We've survived as a species, risen to the top of the food chain with these this ability to preserve our own self-interest. But it needs to be tempered because at the same time we need to live as a community to survive. And the pendulum has generally been able to sit somewhere neatly in between those two imperatives. And I think, as you say, these institutions, including the church, you know, the church fulfilled that role throughout history. It ensured the pendulum didn't swing too far one way or the other. And of course, since about the 1960s, you say, it swung way too far to the self. It parallels the self-help movement, you know, which sort of started then, the happiness movement. But it also paralleled the rise of neoliberalism that came a little bit later. But 
I, I find that a really interesting part of it because, of course, one of the key characteristics of neoliberalism was about removing all of these, what you call, I think, moral guardrails from life. In some ways, they were self-protecting. They protected the species. But what they also did is they freed us up because, and I, I remember you writing about this a number of years ago, unless we've got the philosophical sort of skill set of Aristotle or Nietzsche, we can't possibly wander around life and wrestle with these big complex issues that are happening that are becoming more and more complex because we've also got to have a job, feed the kids, put a you know roof over our, our heads. And so these, these kind of moral mores existed to sort of alleviate that burden. We had a collective sense of what was good. And so when those things are removed, and I use the, the idea of a sporting analogy, when the umpire, you know, these moral umpires – are removed from the football field of life, right? Life becomes this ridiculous free-for-all and it's exhausting. And I feel that that is why so many people are also feeling so overwhelmed. And I just want to read something out that you wrote in your most recent book. You write that when you are raised in a culture without ethical structure, you become internally fragile. And then you go on to explain that what happens next, we fill the moral vacuum with politics and tribalism. American society has become hyper-politicized. Politics provides an easy way to feel a sense of purpose. You don't have to feed the hungry or sit with the widow to be moral. You just have to experience the right emotion. You delude yourself that you are participating in civic life by feeling properly enraged at the other side. And I think that's a really key point. I find that really interesting at the moment, that when we're feeling like we don't have moral capacity because we haven't been trained in it, we haven't had this moral education, it's not happening as a discourse in our society, we then swing into the political and we think if we can just take a side, then that sort of vacuum is filled. I'd love you to expand a little bit more on this and just to sort of explain how dangerous it can become when we do this. Yeah, I mean, back when churches were the center of civic life, you didn't, you know, I'm not going to urge anybody to believe in God if they don't believe in God, but churches at least had the advantage of putting you in a congregation. And so you were surrounded by a community of people oriented around a certain set of values. And when, when you lost a, a spouse to, to death or a child, the community knew what to do. There were certain rituals, that, and so you were surrounded by it. And it's in Judaism, if, you, if your husband dies, everyone sits shiva around you. And it doesn't seem obvious that when you lose your husband, the, the thing you should do is go to a party for the next seven nights. But Shiva is a brilliant ritual to help people navigate through that grieving process. You strip that away, and then you strip all sorts of other moral institutions away, and people are naked and alone. And we have a desperate need to feel our lives are good. It's a fundamental human drive and just to seek meaning and purpose. And so politics, as you say, is a very convenient way to do that. Uh, and in my opinion, we've become over-politicized and under-moralized. We talk too much about politics and not enough about the things like, how do you build a friendship? How do you be a faithful partner? And so we just don't talk about that stuff anymore. And my students, I've been teaching at Yale off and on for 20 years. They're plenty brilliant, but, and they would confess this, they are morally inarticulate. They have not been given the words to describe moral decisions. There's a, a sociologist at Notre Dame, Chris Smith, who did the studies, he asked college students, tell me about your last moral dilemma. And most of the students couldn't name a moral dilemma. They said, well, I pulled into a parking space, but I didn't have enough change. Or I wanted an apartment, but I couldn't afford the rent. 
And you'd say, that's a problem. That's not a moral dilemma. A moral dilemma is when two values clash. And they just hadn't been trained to think about this. And so along comes politics. And as you say, it gives you a, a moral landscape. There's right and wrong. Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line between good and evil runs down every human heart. And that's hard because there's good and bad in each of us. But in politics, there's only good in us. We're the innocent victims and they're the perpetrators. They're the oppressors. They're the colonizers. And once you label somebody colonizer or oppressor, you have no empathy for them. There is no place in your brain for their suffering. And then it, it gives you no activity that really is personal kindness and empathy. Like you said, you're sitting with a widow or feeding the hungry requires a personal contact with another human being, probably is quite different than yourself. But if you decide your, your politics is going to be your morality, you're going to watch, read a certain tabloid or watch a certain network or subscribe to a certain set of Twitter feeds. You don't have to deal with people who are unlike yourself. You don't actually personally have to be kind. In fact, it's probably bad to be kind. And I've found since October 7th, one night, about a week or two after October 7th, I'm sitting in a hotel room or a hotel bar, and I'm scrolling through Twitter. And it's just one angry thing after another, one horrific and brutalizing scene after another. And then I scroll, and then I come to an interview with James Baldwin, the great black writer who you know was living in the U.S. and in Paris. And he, it's an interview he gave in the early 60s. And he says, there's not as much humanity as we would like, but there's more than you would think there is enough. And as we walk down the street, we have to remember that person, all the people you see, though that could be you. You could be that person. You could be that cop. You could be that shopper or whatever. And so you just have to remember, you are just one of those people and they all are connected to you. When I saw that Baldwin in the midst of all that brutalizing dehumanity, I thought, here is an image of defiant humanism. Baldwin faced a lot of hard times because of his race. And nonetheless, he was not going to be calloused over. He was not going to be cruel. He was going to insist on being a full, soft, and sometimes vulnerable human being. And that defiant humanism seems like a model for us all in our time. We've got to hang on to it, I think, and we've got to preserve it, and we've got to cultivate it. It's paramount at the moment because without that, I'm not sure how we're going to survive what's going on and, and what is ahead of us. It's really interesting, I think, this sort of descent into bifurcation, polarization, which is all political. It's a strange reaction. But as I read your work, I've also been drawing a lot on James Baldwin, other poets, other thinkers who've had to deal with similarly complex times. I come to understand a little of what is going on, that this is tribalism. This is what we do when we're confused and we're overwhelmed. And, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but the pressure I face as somebody in the public eye to take a side, to pick a side. And when I come out and say, I might have a side, but I am not going to enter into this fray at this level. I prefer to enter into the fray with the aim of preserving humanism, with the aim of having a nuanced discussion and accepting that this is bloody complex. You know, we are not made for this. Let's start to have a discussion about how we can start to build that moral muscle again. Tell me, David, are you? do you face the same pressure to pick a side, to take a side? And when you come out with nuanced discussions, do you get slammed? I'm, I'm intrigued for personal reasons, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, I get slammed, but I, I've learned to hide from the slamming. I've found that I'm not psychologically strong enough to confront my meanest enemies. So I, I hide from them. I never check how I'm talked about on Twitter. I look at the comments under my column, but I don't really look at them very carefully. 
I have other people who do that, and that makes them all depressed. But I also find there's there's an audience out there that that really values it. And so I do a show in the U.S. called the PBS News Hour, which is sort of a public broadcasting news program. Yeah, that's it. My parents are massive fans, and I should say it does. You can listen to it in Australia and obviously around the world. So yes, I, I think that they're very impressed that I'm interviewing you today for that for that reason. Yeah, I happen to be in Sydney on 9-11 and felt the sympathy of Australian people on that day. It was very moving for me to be in Australia on that day. And a lot of NewsHour fans came up to me in Australia. But, you know, it used to be that people would walk up to me and say, thank you for your show. No, it used to be, I like your show. I like your show. In the last seven years or so, it's thank you for your show. Because they want so much to have civil discourse modeled. And frankly, our ratings have gone way up as a result. And I don't know why the cable TVs in the States don't mimic a little what we're doing, because we have better ratings than most of them. And so I think there is an audience out there for it. And I found myself, I'm Isaiah Berlin said, the philosopher said, I consider myself on the rightward edge of the leftward tendency. And so he was going to be on the, probably a person on the left, but he was going to be the most conservative side. And if that was good enough for Isaiah Berlin, that's about where I feel in, in the US context. And so I'm sort of center-right, center-left. My friends are really about defending liberal, the liberal tradition in the classic sense of democracy and humanity and personalism against those who would turn everybody into one or two categories, oppressor, oppressed, left, right. Uh, those kind of categories are really dehumanizing. And I find when I talk to people, I, if I can get them in narrative mode, I've immediately introduced some humanity into the conversation. So I, I no longer ask people, how, what do you believe about that? I ask, how did you come to believe that? And then they're telling me about a personal story, about an experience they had, or some person who shaped their values. It's much more interesting than just arguing. Mm. Yeah, I want to come back to some of those techniques that you are using to create a more humane type of discourse. And I agree with you, David, I'm noticing the same thing. News events will see my following drop and rise according to just what level of outrage is going on. But what I've noticed since October 7, in the first couple of weeks, my numbers dropped because people just wanted to buy into the bifurcation. They just wanted extremities. They just wanted to have places where they can just scream and vent. But as it's gone on, I've noticed a huge uptick in followers who are wanting, who are looking for places to have gentler, more humane, delicate wrestles with the issues, you know, and which I'm finding so heartening. It brings tears to my eyes to actually witness it because I didn't know if we would arrive at that space. You mentioned trust before, David, and the figures that you mentioned, I think they keep increasing. So I think in 1997, not so long ago, about two-thirds of Americans had a great or good deal of trust in the governing institutions. But today, you know, only about a third of Americans do. And I think that figure's even lower for, for young people, millennials. I'm wondering, and, and Australia, I should say, by the way, and the UK are starting to follow this trajectory, trust in institutions, but also we've seen a declining democracy, you know, worldwide, democratic institutions, but also the number of democracies are sort of lessening. There's obviously these organisations that track this kind of thing. How does all of this play into your thesis about morality and where we're at? Because I think that's probably worth talking about. Yeah, well, the measures of trust are are as good as we have measures of the moral state of your country. 
because people trust those who are trustworthy. Trust and distrust follow behavior. And so you've cited the statistics and can you trust your institutions? And that's been a decline. The more troubling decline for me is can you trust each other? And so the World Value Survey asks, can you trust your neighbors, the people right around you? And again, it's similar. It's uh, two generations ago, 60% said, yes, I trust my neighbors. Now it's down to 30% and 19% of millennial and Gen Z. And that's because they've been betrayed. They've been betrayed by the big institutions, but also by each other. I used to ask my students, you know, why are this trust level so high among you? You should be young and full of trust and hope. And one woman said to me, have you seen our social lives? And she went on to describe that she's had a, a few boyfriends in her life, and they all ghosted her at the end. They didn't have the consideration to have a conversation and say, listen, I'm sorry, this is not working out. They just vanished. And so she, of course, is going to be distrustful. She's going to think the next guy she dates is also going to ghost her. And I think it's some of it is just lacking the skills to be trustworthy with each other and to do the right thing. And it sounds like old-fashioned, and it sounds like I'm an old fogey saying, you know, just do the right thing, but don't go somebody. You know, one of the things I think we've lost is the sense that every human being has a soul. And I don't ask you to believe in God or not believe in God, but I ask you to believe that every person you meet has some piece of them that has no size, weight, color, or shape, but gives them infinite value and dignity. And we're not equal in the level of our muscle power or brain power, but we're equal in the level of our soul. And you should treat each person with a level of reverence and respect and treat them as if they had a soul. And so we had this scandal several years ago with a comedian, Aziz Ansari, and he treated a girl badly. And, you know, I, I don't know who was right, who was wrong in their encounter, but if he had just treated her like she had a soul of infinite value and dignity, you're probably going to end up treating them well. Uh, and that goes with the person across the cash register, the person, the Uber, the person you're dating, the person you're drinking with. It's just a handy rule of thumb. And once you start treating people as objects, then you're on the road to something pretty bad. Yeah, I think, I don't know whether it was you or some other kind of psychologist in this field refers to the fact that when we lose trust in each other, we become vulnerable narcissists. And I I can see that playing out because we, we're defensive, right? I mean, if the if the dude's going to ghost us and the next dude's going to ghost us, well, I need to look after myself and I'm just going to, I'm going to ghost first, you know, and that is dating culture in, you know, 2023. Loneliness has a big part to play in all of this. And I know you have been, in fact, I think I first came across all these statistics via your work, these diseases of despair, you know, opioid use, alcohol use, suicide. And and this pattern, by the way, is now playing out in the UK. It's replicating. So life expectancy is dropping as a result of these diseases of despair. But I'm wondering if you might feel comfortable commenting on this. I've had a number of guests on recently who are speaking in the collapse space, so the civilizational collapse space. And there's a lot of commentary coming out of the US on the collapse of America. I think there's about half a dozen books that have just come out that speak exactly to this and a lot of op-eds in the Atlantic, the New York Times and New Yorker and so on. It's super interesting and I'm following it very closely. And I don't know if you're aware of the various stages of collapse. Various historians have cited these stages and one particular thesis works to the idea of these six stages. So after a society, a civilization has passed through an age of intellect, I think that's around about stage three or four, in which politicization takes over from moral discussion. 
then passes into the sixth stage, which is decadence, where, and I quote the person who put this together, I think it's Dr. John Glubb, he wrote, hedonism, cynicism, pessimism, narcissism, consumerism, materialism, nihilism, fatalism, fanatics abound. There's no trust. Politics is increasingly corrupt, life increasingly unjust. A cabal of insiders accrues wealth and power at the expense of the citizens. And they throw off social and moral restraints, shirking duties but insisting on entitlement. So that's one description of the final stage that a, you know, a society will enter into before it will collapse, so whether it's the Mayan Empire, the Roman Empire and so on. And I pick up on a number of, of words there, elites, lack of trust, politicisation that takes the place of moral discussion. These are all themes that you have spoken to over the course of your recent career, at least in, I think, the last three, four, five books that you've written, do you feel that we face a similar fate to Rome? Do you feel that this is part of a broader collapse? Or do you feel that we can morally reform and save ourselves? It's a big question. I'm hoping you're okay to answer it. I'm, I'm all for big questions. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good question. <laughs> Very good question. You know, I could paint that decline story, and if I did, I, I would focus on social distrust because everything in the world of trust is reciprocal. And so if you get more distrustful, you're going to act in less cooperative ways. You're going to make everybody else around you more distrustful. So you get caught in this distrust doom loop, and so you just down, 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 and when distrust goes away, almost everything goes away. You can't do capitalism. You can't do democracy. You can't do social life. And so I can paint that story. I may be just a wildly unrealistic person, but I, I would give a decline in recovery story, I would tell. And so I've been helped over the last five years in particular by a book written by a political scientist named Samuel Huntington. And in 1983, he wrote a book called Politics of Disharmony. And in that book, he says, and he's talking about the U.S. history, but it's, I'll explain why it's replicable for other countries. He says, you know, I, I've noticed that every 60 years or so, America seems to go through what he calls a moral convulsion. People get disgusted with established power. Outside groups want to come in. There's a new communication technology on the scene. A younger, highly passionate and moral generation comes on the scene. And he says this happened in the 1770s with the American Revolution. It happened in the 1890s with industrialization. And the progressive movement it happened in the 1960s with all the turmoil in the 1960s. And so writing in 1983, he says, you know, I don't know if I believe in this 60-year cycle, but if it holds, then somewhere around 2020, the U.S. is going to go through another moral convulsion. And I thought, pretty good prediction, because we certainly did. Uh, and so the good news about moral corrupt convulsions is you pull out of them. Basically, what happens is you build a culture to solve your problems. That culture works for a little while, but then it stops working, and you have to chop it up. And that period of chopping up the culture is ugly. And people think we're collapsing here. But then five years later, a new culture has emerged. And so in the 1960s, there were bombings, there were assassinations, there were marches across Europe, the West Asia. In 1975, people are into crystals and est and new agey stuff. <laughs> like and some new culture had come on the scene. And so when you look at periods of cultural recovery, how do we rebuild trust as a society? They and there are two prime examples that I've studied. One is England between about 1815 and 1848. And in 1815, it was perfectly acceptable for a guy to get drunk at work, go home and beat his wife. By 1848, you've had 
political reform, widening the franchise. You've had cultural reform, the beginning of the Victorian ethos, and you've had civic reform, uh, creation of all sorts of new unions and other civic organizations. Similarly, in the U.S., between 1890 and 1920, we went from a very brutal society to a much healthier and much more group-oriented society, communal. And once again, there was cultural reform. We went from the social Darwinism, which was all about selfishness, to the social gospel movement, which is about community. Then we had civic reform. We had the creation of all sorts of new institutions, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the NAACP for civil rights, the environmental movement, the settlement house movement. And then you had political reform, the progressive movement, which cleaned up politics. And so I look at these periods where you can recover as a society, and I'm hopeful we're, we're in the process of recovering. And that we used to be super individualistic, and now we're, we're arguing about different groups, and unfortunately we're doing it in the crudest way with tribalism. But at least we're trying to answer the question, what community am I part of? And so I'm, I may be unrealistically hopeful, but I'm sticking with it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm glad you are, and I think it's an, an interesting part of this collapse discussion. And, you know, virtually every collapse theory has as a sort of a caveat or as at least as a, a sort of a pivot point is the moral decline, the, the, the mass civil unrest, the inability for a culture or a, democ- you know, a government set up to solve the problems. I mean, that's at the core of it, right? Societies face all kinds of problems. We always have, right? Life is hard. It's our capacity to come together as communities to solve the issues that will determine our fate. And I suppose that's why people like you are are really fighting and championing this kind of discussion, as am I, because at the very least, if we're going to face continuing calamities in coming years, we're going to have to learn to be nice to each other as we go down. I mean, that's at a, a really basic level. And that's sort of the mantra that I, in many ways, work to. But what I would love to do before we move into some of the practical uh, applications, the practical tips for, I guess, being nicer to each other, less mean to each other, could you share a little bit about your story, David? Because you come from a background having been a conservative, a Republican, and there was a point in your life a number of years ago where you sort of had a bit of a dark night of the soul kind of moment, and it saw you make some fairly radical changes to your life. It saw you write about different subjects, you know, the stuff we're talking about right now. I'd love you to share some of that experience. You've been open about it in in a number of places, including in your most recent book. 
but I think it's really telling. I think it's a it's a wonderful reminder of where we need to be heading, the kinds of challenges that we face as humans, how they can actually flip around into a different kind of discussion. Yeah. So first on the decline, one more point occurred to me is a friend of mine says, take a, a piece of paper and write all the problems of your nation down on the list. And then on one side of the paper, and then the other side of the paper, right, we have more talent than ever before. And our societies are using more talent. That we have more talent than ever before. We have, women are have freer opportunities to use their talents. Minority groups have different freer are, to use their talents. We're attracting people from all over the world. And so I'm sticking with we have more talent than ever before. Now, as for my own sad little life, uh, <laughs> I begin the book by saying, if you ever if you remember this movie, Fiddler on the Roof, you know how huggy and warm and emotional Jewish families can be. Uh, and I come from the other kind of Jewish family. And so our, I don't know if this is offensive to Brits or not, but our, our culture was think Yiddish, act British. So as to be super intellectual, but a little res emotionally reserved. And so I grew up in that kind of emotional reserved home. And if you had met me after college, you would have thought I was nice enough, but you would not have wanted to confide in me. I was not particularly in touch with emotions. I w I, one little episode symbolizes for me that old way of being, which was I love baseball. And in baseball, if a batter hits a foul ball into the stands, you get to keep the ball. And so it's a great treat to get a ball. And I've been to hundreds of maybe thousands of games. I've never gotten a ball. But I was in Baltimore with my youngest son like 10 or 15 years ago, and the batter loses control of the bat. It flies in the air and it lands on my lap. Now, getting a bat is a thousand times better than getting a ball. And so I've just hit the jackpot. And any normal human being would be jumping up and down, high-fiving everybody, hugging, getting on this jumbotron screen there. I just put the bat at the feet and stare straight ahead. I had the emotional reaction of a turtle, basically. And so that symbolizes for me a guy who's just not in touch with his emotions, not expressing. I look back on that guy and I think, show a little joy, you know, just participate in the emotional life of the world. And so I think I was more or less like that. And things happen that warm you up, that loosen you up. But parenthood was a big, you know, obviously it's going to be a transformation of the heart. Then, as you mentioned, I went through a hard time around 10 years ago. I had a divorce. My kids were leaving home to go to university. And I was just lonely, uh, painfully lonely, especially over the weekends. I, I realized I had weekday friends, professional friends I could talk politics with, but I didn't have as many weekend friends, the kind of people you just hang out with, the kind of people you can call at two in the morning. And so I did what any male idiot would do, which is I tried to work my way through the problem. I just become a workaholic. And another moment symbolizes for me that life, which was I wasn't socializing much and I was, certainly wasn't having people over to my apartment. So if you went to the kitchen where there were, should have been a drawer full of silverware, if you looked at in that drawer, there was just post-it notes. And where there should have been plates in the closet, there was just stationery. And so that symbolized me, a guy who's just trying to work through stuff. But the loneliness manifested itself as sort of a burning in the stomach. It was really almost like a physical pain. And I learned in moments of suffering, there's a theologian, Paul Tillich, moments of suffering interrupt your life and remind you you're not the person you thought you were. They carve through what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul and reveal a cavity below. Carve through that floor, reveal a cavity below. So you just see deeper parts of yourself than you saw before. And you realize only spiritual and emotional food will fill that. And my rule is moments of suffering, we all have them. The question is, are you broken by them or are you broken open by them? Are you made harder and soft and self-protective? 
or are you willing to be more heartfelt and vulnerable and become a fuller human being? And I said, it's my goal to become a fuller human being. And so I did it the University of Chicago way, my alma mater. I, I wrote books about emotion called The Social Animal. I wrote a book about character formation. I tried to teach myself into just being a more humane person. And my proof, I can prove to you that it works. So the book I tell this story and it involves some name dropping, but I've been interviewed by Oprah twice in my life. And the second time was 2019. And after that taping, she says to me, David, I rarely seen somebody change so much in middle age. You were so emotionally blocked before. And so that was like a very good moment for me because it shows you can change and you can become more open and vulnerable and emotional. And I'm the number of people who tell me that they're, I'm so different than I was is high. Just this week, I ran across a guy who used to have kids in my kid's school. They were my, our kids were friends. And he said, you know, you're, you're very different. I used to think you really hated me. And I didn't hate him at all. I had no negative feelings toward him. I just was projecting this sort of stiff persona. And how you gaze upon the world is how you show up in the world. And I, I was showing up in this reserved way. And so, yeah, you can change. Yeah, I love that story. And I have listened to the 2019 interview you did with Oprah, and I loved how she challenged you on that. I remember feeling or at least absorbing some of your emotion, like the fact that you felt recognized and seen, you know, in that transformation. I'm also reminded of the quote you mentioned before about dropping and dropping to a new layer of realization. It reminds me of some work that I've done with David Wyatt, the poet who's also been on this podcast. He and I went walking in the Lake District a number of years ago and we were talking about grief and he talks about it in a similar way. You fall, you drop through the floor and then you drop through another floor and you think this can't possibly keep going. And just when you get a bit of stability, you drop again and you keep falling until you land in a spot. And the thing that you used to grieve is to hold and it's no longer there, but what's there instead is, is yourself. You meet yourself. And I think that's what often happens when we go through these, you know, the floor dropping out from beneath us moments, right? We keep falling, falling, falling until we finally find a way to meet ourselves. And it just reminded me of all of that. But it's also another reminder, again, reading literature, poets, having these kinds of discussions is about building that muscle so that when we are having these complex discussions, like what's happening in the Middle East, like the identity crisis, like what's happening with the climate, we have the language, we have the metaphors, and we have the teachings that we can draw on. And we also have the comfort from knowing other people have gone through this before. I think F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote to his nephew once, and his nephew was despairing about life. He was a, a young man, and he said, take comfort from the fact that you know, many people have gone through this before you and many of them turn out to become writers. So there's books out there that can help you with all of this. So speaking of books, I'd love to cover off now some of the techniques that you write about in your latest book. They're sort of fixes for our dehumanized culture and the polarization. And they're geared at rehumanizing each other in many ways and ourselves. And it's about seeing someone else deeply and making them feel seen to accurately know another person, to let them feel valued, heard and understood. You feel that that's at the heart 
of moral formation. And I know that you've been inspired over the years by Iris Murdoch's work, I think The, the Sovereignty of Good. I've just started reading it. It's a complex read. It's almost like a, a vomiting of her stream of consciousness. Her stream of consciousness is a good one, so it's a good one to, to follow. But she talks particularly about this idea of paying attention to others. Can you talk about why you feel that that's so important? And while you're at it, maybe share some techniques that can get us paying more attention, more intimate attention to others. Yeah, so she learned a lot, first of all, from Simone Weil, Iris Murdoch did. And Simone Weil was yes. a young Jewish French woman who really survived the Holocaust, well, went, went to the US, then went back to the UK, wanted to go volunteer, really wants to die with her people, the Jewish people. And she said, attention is the ultimate moral act. Uh, and that's the, the, if you look at the world with suspicious eyes, you'll find threat. If you look at the world with generous eyes, you'll find people doing the best they can. And so the quality of attention determines the quality of your way of being in the world. And so Iris Murdoch says, most of the time we go through life with self-centered attention. We look at other people as instruments. We can't see from their perspective. And there's a, a joke I learned that's about a guy who's on one side of the river and there's a woman on the other side of the river and she shouts to him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he shouts back, you are on the other side of the river. And that's a guy who couldn't get him out of his own perspective. Yeah, he's he's stuck in his own perspective. But Murdoch says our goal should be to cast a just and loving attention on others. And she says we can grow by looking. And so that quality of attention, how we attend to others, how we pay attention to others, was illustrated to me by an event that happened to me several years ago. I'm down in Waco, Texas, and I'm having breakfast at a diner with a 93-year-old lady named LaRue Dorsey. And she presents herself to me as a strict disciplinarian, a stern drill sergeant kind of lady. She'd been a teacher. She said, I love my students enough to discipline them. And I was a little intimidated by this formidable lady. And in come to the diner comes a pastor, a mutual friend of ours named Jimmy Durrell. And Jimmy sees us, walks up to us, grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. And he says, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best. You're the best. I love you. I love you. And she turns instantly, not a stern disciplinarian, suddenly she's a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl, as soft and as vulnerable as possible to imagine a person. And that one moment was illustrating to me the power of attention. You just show up to people with eyes that, that say, you're, I'm a, you're a priority to me. You're a person to me. I value you. Your eyes answer those questions before any words come out of your mouth. So showing up with that kind of attention is just a valuable way of going through life. And the way, one way to think about it is, you know, when we're hanging out, we're not having deep conversations with each other yet, but I'm the accompaniment. I'm the accompanist. I'm like the pianist who's there trying to make the singer shine. So I'm paying attention to what she's doing. I'm trying to embellish what she's doing. I'm trying to build on what she's doing. But I'm going to be other-centered about it. And that's just a very practical way of thinking about how to accompany my others through life. Yeah, you distinguish between being an illuminator instead of a diminisher. And I've got a friend, I'll do a shout out to her, Melissa Hemsley. She really comes to mind when I think about that. She is a illuminator. She can walk into a room and make everyone feel a million bucks. And one by one, she goes up to every single person and she's aware of what they need to feel good about themselves and she delivers it. And it's all about making them feel illuminated. I love that distinction. And I'd love you to maybe share a number of 
techniques for accessing that ability in ourselves, our ability to be an illuminator in life. Yeah. So the, the ministers are people who make you feel small and unseen. They stereotype, they ignore, they don't ask questions. And I found that only about 30 or 40% of people I meet are questions askers. The rest are like, they'll present themselves to you, but they just don't ask questions. They're not question askers. And I'll sometimes leave a party and think that whole time, nobody asked me a question. And the illuminators, on the other hand, like your friend, really are curious. They do know how to make you feel seen. And I quote uh, a biography of, of the novelist Ian Forster, who wrote a, a little over a century ago. And his biographer wrote of him to be with him is to be seduced by an inverse charisma, to be listened to with such intensity you had to be your sharpest, best, most honest self. How great would it be to be that guy? And so these skills are mostly skills of conversation. And so in the book, I collect a bunch of things that are good conversational skills that you can learn. Anybody can learn to be a better conversationalist. And there are things like treat attention as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. If you're going to be with somebody, make it 100% or 0%. Don't 60% it. Another is be a loud listener. I have a buddy who, when you talk to him, it's like talking to a Pentecostal church. He's going, yes, I agree. Amen. Amen. Preach. Preach. Just love talking to that guy. And you don't have to be a loud listener necessarily with your voice, but with your eyes, with your reactions. Actually, we just mentioned Oprah. Go look at an Oprah interview. Turn off the sound. Just watch her face. She is highly reactive, and it just feels great. I can tell you from experience, it feels great to talk to her. She's not intimidating, even though she's Oprah, because she's just so reacting to you. Another tip is don't be a topper. If you tell me you're having trouble with your 16-year-old son, and I say, oh, I know what you're going through. I'm having trouble with my Tommy. It sounds like I'm trying to relate to you. But what I'm really doing is taking the conversation out of you, and let's talk about me. And so don't be a topper. And then finally, if you're in, in a fight with somebody, keep what they call the gem statement at the center. The gem statement is what we agree on base, all, all the way down. So if my brother and I are fighting about our dad's health care, we both want what's best for our dad. And if we keep the gem statement at the center, even amid conflict, we'll preserve the relationship amid the disagreement. And so there's, there's just a few practical tips, and I got a bunch more in the book, of yeah. just how to be a better conversationalist. I like one of the tips in there, turn your partner into a narrator. So it's this idea of digging a little bit deeper. Oh, tell me more about that. And what color were the curtains? And how did you feel about it when she said that? I think that's a really, really good technique. And it's something that I try to practice both as an interviewer, but also when I'm at a dinner party. I mean, I've got a terrible trait, David, of, of sometimes getting bored, right? My mind's wandering off and I'm, I'm wanting to talk about things and other people are talking about other things that I find a little bit pedestrian. And I always just set the challenge of, well, I'll just ask a deeper question. I'll ask how they feel about it, which leads me actually to one of the tips in your book is about asking big questions. And I find this really interesting because I have spent my life asking those kinds of questions. And as a, a young girl, I was teased and bullied for it. You know, but why? But why? You're always asking why. But I love the kinds of conversations where the big questions come out. And, you know, from your book, you you call them 30,000-foot questions, the ones that lift people out of their daily vantage points and help them see themselves from above. They're questions like, what crossroads are you at? Most people are in the middle of some life transition. This question encourages them to step back and describe theirs. What are some questions that you've been toying with that get to the heart of the person? They then feel fully seen and a very different humane dynamic begins. 
What What's an example where you've played with it and it's really produced results? Some of the questions, like I have a friend, she asks, why you? Why was it you who felt the need to start this podcast or write your column or why you? And that's a good question. Another one I asked at a dinner party recently is, how do your ancestors show up in your life? And so we're all shaped by our heritage. And so at that dinner party, there was a Dutch couple and they talked about how Dutch heritage had shaped them. There was a black couple, they talked about African-American. I talked about you know 5,000 years of Jewish history. We just learned a lot about each other. Some are, if you died today, what would you, what would you regret not doing? And so that's a question that gets people like, oh, what do I really value in life? I had a great conversation with a political scientist who's 80, and he said, I've probably got one more project in me. What should it be? And that turned into a great conversation about what he really desires, what he really values, how to age well, how to die well. And that was just a, he asked that big question. So your habit is the absolutely right one. I admire you for it because a lot of us don't want to ask the question, but I, because we think we're, it's too heavy or too deep, we're invading people's privacy. But I have found in my life as a journalist, I don't know about you, that when I ask people respectfully about their life story, how many times do they say none of your damn business? The answer is zero. If Because nobody's ever asked them about their life story. And I'm not shy anymore about asking people about their childhood. What was your home like? What do you want to do when you were a kid? And people, nobody has ever asked them. And people love talking about that kind of stuff. And you learn all sorts of surprising stuff. Everybody's more interesting than you think. People are carrying way more baggage than you think. And you have memorable conversations. And just finally, there's a guy I quote in the book named Peter Block, who has some really deep questions. There are things like, what commitment have you made you no longer believe in? What refusal do you keep postponing? Or what gift do you currently hold in exile? What talent of yours are you not using? And so those are questions that cause people to really see themselves in a new way, and you, you learn more about them, and you learn more about yourself. They're good moral questions, that's for sure. They're questions I think we all need to be asking at the moment. David, I've got a question for you, and I actually haven't asked it of a guest for a while, but for a while there I was sort of asking anyone who had a bit of a philosophical slant and who I felt might have a cracking answer. It, it derives from a question that Eric Fromm you know, postulates in one of his works, he says, what is left if we lose it all? And by lose it all, you can interpret it in different ways. But if you're stripped of everything, all the artifices that you thought propped you up and that you thought defined your life, what is left were you to lose it all? Would I lose my spouse and kids? Or, I mean, is it a book of Job type stuff? Or is it, is it, <laughs> I, I, when you, I lose it all, I think of want. my career. But yeah, well, hopefully I would not lose my innermost relationships. But even so, I, I suppose what is left, I've come to think, you know, I, when I was seven or eight, I read a book called Paddings and the Bear, which I hope everybody's read, and decided I wanted to become a writer. And so that's been the through line of my life. And I tell this joke in the book that in high school, I wanted to date a woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. So that was a core <laughs> to my life. But I, as I've gotten older, I've come to think, I'm not really a writer. I'm, I get most satisfaction out of being a teacher. And if I find some quote from a guy like David White, who I wish I had met him, or I envy you for having met him, and I, you know, I find it very useful, and I put it in a book and I pass it along to others, I find great satisfaction in that. And so if I find something useful and somebody says, oh, that's good, let me write that down, then that's me doing what, I should, what I'm put on this earth to be doing. And so I hope if I lost everything else, the, my jobs, my status, 
they couldn't take the curiosity and the ability to try to teach others, to learn and teach. Uh, I think as long as I had my brain, I could continue to do that. And so, frankly, I'm not as afraid of retirement as some other people I know are, because I think, well, they're never going to take that bit away from me. And so that would be the core. That would be what's left. That's my answer. I like that. And it's actually not that dissimilar to Eric Fromm's ultimate answer. His answer was, you know, he he makes his life a practice in love and work. And he feels that those two things are, are worth cultivating for a lifetime. It's ultimately been of service to others in, in two sort of different ways. David, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I could keep talking to you about all your work, you know, the second mountain, the road to character, and, and you know, your recent sort of essays, the one in the Atlantic about why America's becoming mean, they're all really important discussions. And yeah, thank you for doing your work. Thank you for being of service in the way that you are. No, it's an honor to be here. And I'm glad to find somebody who's tilling the same soil that I'm tilling. So let's, let's keep going. So David has previously framed the quest to become a morally orientated person, a person who can handle the complexity of all the moral questions that are arising at the moment as the road to character. And he's advocated for cultivating what he calls these eulogy virtues, the things we ultimately want to be remembered for, for having brought to the world when it's all over. In all the discussions we are having about the perils that face the world, I think one of the wilder perspectives that we can take is to have a solid gold answer to that question I often ask at the end of these wild interviews and which I put to David just now. What is left if we're stripped of all the layers of complexity, the structures, what matters in the final wash-up? Ultimately, what is left is our humanity. I think I've been asking this question of some, although not all, guests for more than two years now because I've wanted to keep coming back to this truth. Our humanity is everything, and if we don't fight for that, we're screwed. As I mentioned briefly, most theories about how screwed we are So whether it's the effective altruistic perspective, whether it's coming from the utilitarian point of view, whether it's about AI, climate, and even the gender debate, the determining factor that dictates which way we go is us as a collective. Will we handle it? Will we work well with each other to solve the issue? Will we put humanity ahead of the other factors? Will we fight to save this one wild and precious life? Knowing how to do good moral wrestle is fundamental to being able to answer this with a resounding yes. David has been criticised for his simplistic takes, you know, that to suggest that civics lessons and helping people to be seen can somehow save us. You know, he's deemed almost too naive. I'm not sure that that's what he's necessarily saying, though, although when I ask him in that interview just now, He does quote the work of Samuel Huntington that I'm familiar with that talks about things in terms of these 60-year moral cycles. But his point really is, why wouldn't we do it anyway? Ultimately, what is left in the final wash-up is a desire to have a meaningful, humane life, which his answer to the question points to. So why not live meaningfully now? Live in the moral complexity, cultivate eulogy virtues, live this life being an illuminator and make people feel seen. Don't be a conversation topper. 
That is, don't top off another's concerns in a conversation with a better or harder tale of woe and ask big questions. Over on my Substack, I'm going to post a bunch of big questions that I've thought of, you know, the 30,000 foot questions that can open up some better conversations that can make others feel seen. So I'm going to have a bit of fun with it and you're welcome to join me over there at sarahwilson.substack.com. This is the last episode for 2023. I'll be having a bit of a break for a number of weeks over the holiday period. I will post a bunch of favourite episodes in the meantime, and they'll be the kind of episodes you may have missed. They're carefully selected for long car trips, walks around the block, when you need to get some air from too many, I don't know, relatives, best of and for our times, our difficult times. I'll be back in the new year with more wildness for sure, and I'll see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.